0: So, Second Thessalonians. Second Thessalonians is a little shorter book than First. Uh, first, Th- first Thessalonians had five chapters; Second has uh, three chapters. So, it won't take us quite as long to get through this book. Uh, but just a little um, inside information: We're going to be going to the Gospel of John next. So, yeah, all right, Gospel of John. <laughs> Brother, brother, brother Chuck is excited about the Gospel of John. So we're going to go through the Gospel of John. Um, I would imagine sometime before the end of the year, we'll, we'll start it probably november, November-ish, november I would think. And so I love the Gospel. I love going through any of the Gospels. I think the last Gospel we went through on Wednesday night uh, was the Gospel of Mark. And so the Gospel of John will be next. Okay, so we finished 1 Thessalonians. Now we're on to Second, And so... I, I, I preached last week, I concluded the book, and as, as if you were here, you remember that I kind of the premise of my whole message in the conclusion was that the apostle Paul had no way of knowing whether or not he would get another opportunity to communicate to this church, and so that was true. He, he really had no way of knowing you don 't know what life 's going to hold. life is a vapor, the book of james says it 's here today it 's gone tomorrow we 're not promised our next breath, so he literally had no idea that he would be able to Communicate again to, to this church, but just to think back to uh, the birth of this church, it was birth in the middle of persecution. Uh, he, Paul and uh, a, a partner of his had to be escorted out in the middle of the night from the city because uh, the the Jews in that area were persecuting them because the gospel had been preached, and so he left the church way before I, I would imagine he intended to leave you know if you 're a If you're a church planner, you know that it's going to take a little while to establish things in a new church. You just don't want to be there for a few days and have to get out of town and say, good luck, have fun. You know, I would imagine he would probably have wanted to to have been there a couple of years, at least a year, to really establish some foundational truths. And so I believe that Paul was eager to know how the church was doing. And so he wrote the first letter, then he got word again sometime later and the time frame is somewhere around six to nine months, scholars think, the second letter came after he had gotten word about how the church was doing. So he was concerned about the condition of their faith. He was concerned about how they were doing. Were they, how were they handling the persecution? How were they handling their newfound faith in Jesus Christ? Were they persevering? Were, were they genuine believers in Jesus Christ? You know, because to really know if somebody's a believer, it's more than just a, a, a repeating of a prayer at an altar. Do you guys know that? It's more than just coming down here and repeat, re- repeating a prayer. It's, it's actual, you know, for us as pastors to know and for brothers and sisters in Christ to know if somebody is a believer, it takes some time to, to recognize the fruits of repentance in that person's life. You know, there can be somebody who says that they're something, but they're not. You guys ever experienced that? They can say, I, I, I believe in this and I believe in that or, or, or I love you. You know, when your spouse tells you that they love you, do they show you that they love you? Right? Or maybe you're dating somebody, and you want to know if they, re- they really love you. It's not that complicated. <laughs> How do they express that love? You know, when me and Estelle were dating, she was not confused about my, my intentions for her. I made it abundantly clear. And that's convicting David, to even think about. How much am I le- le- making my intentions known to her now? You know, we get busy with life, and we get busy with children, and, and jobs, and responsibilities, and the same type of demonstration of my love for her and the people that we care about needs to be, to be continuing to grow. And that's the same, I believe, heart that Paul has in writing this letter back. And so that's kind of what we're going to deal with. We're only going to cover uh, the first five verses of chapter one. But what you're going to notice is, is that Paul's going to hit the same themes. And there's one of the similar themes that we covered last week is going to be in this message too. But he, he, there's really two main issues that are going on and he. From his report that he got when, before he wrote the second letter, he writes about these issues once more with them, and there's still this issue from these false teachers about the idea that the coming of the Lord Jesus had already happened, and so he comes at it again in this letter, and then there's the issue of people being idle and not working because the idea that well the Lord Jesus came and we're in the midst of persecution, so sirrah, we're just going to give up and we're not and we're going to be idle and not do anything. And he, he hits that even more firmly. If you remember last week, he just, in passing setting, encourage those that are idle to work with their hands. This time, he goes even more deeper and explains why it's important for them to work. So that, that's kind of what this letter is. It's shorter, but it goes, it goes over some similar themes. But in the beginning of this letter, there's really just such a sense of Paul being proud of this church. This is a church that he has gotten a report about how they're doing And you can just tell he is excited about what's going on, and he's boasting about what's going on in this church. And so I just kind of have a question before we get into these verses, the first five verses. You know, what are some things that you would say as believers in any church that we should be proud of about our church? You know, I I think that people are proud of some things about churches, and it's not always the the right things that they're proud of. So I kind of came up with a list of a bunch of wrong things to be proud of about your church. About your church, um, and so here's the first one. Sometimes people are proud of the, the church size and the attendance of the church. I guess maybe the size of the building or the attendance of the church. That that's something that they that they're proud of, that they boast about. I I, I, I go to a big church, right? I go to a large church. That's something to, that they that they kind of let other people know, you know. And you know that it really doesn't matter how big your church is. You could have a church of fifty people or five thousand. And the church of 50 people can be more impactful for the kingdom of God than the Church of 5,000 people. The church size and the number doesn't determine how powerful the church is. The Christ-likeness of the people in the congregation is what matters, not the numbers. It's another thing that people I, — I guess I kind of said that, the size of the building, the property. We just happen to have a large building and 90 acres. So, so I'm not saying you can't be proud. You know, we, we are very blessed to have a large building and, and, and a lot of property. But, man, that's not the most important thing. It's not the most important thing for, for, for people to know that, we, that, you know, we attend Living Word Church. And I work at Living Word Church, you know, this big church. Man, you know, at the end of the day, this church is going to burn up, right? It's going to be nothing. We're going to be in heaven not worried about our buildings and our acres. We're going to be worried about exalting Christ. The next thing. What's some other reasons? Their wealth. The wealth of the church. You know, a lot of times you have a large church, large congregation. You can have a lot of money. And so then that you, can, you can be proud of the fact that you have a church with a lot of money in it. The next thing that people wrongly are proud of, the social status of their members. you never, I, I, Look, people love it whenever there's somebody famous in their church, somebody that has influence in the community. It's this idea that the, 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 the cool, popular people in our culture or our society or community come to our church. Man, that doesn't matter. It's the next thing that people can be proud of, the prominence of their pastor. You know, I think this is, this is a, a challenging thing, especially in the day of social media and uh, media in general. There's, there's so many larger churches with prominent pastors that get their name out there. And people will come and attend their church because of their name. You know, I, I've heard of church plants where you've got a, a celebrity pastor that goes and plants a church. And there can, I'm not saying there's anything wrong with, with what they're doing, but they'll go start a church and they might have 2,000, two, two, three 3,000 people show up because they're coming because of that personality and the prominence of that pastor. And there's something that people latch on to with that that is earthly, that is, that is not good, it's not healthy. It's not, that's not a reason to go to a church because the pastor is famous or he's seen on TV or he's got a big following on Twitter or everyone else loves the church. You know, people, you know, if, if you post a, a, a selfie of yourself, you know, in the pew with somebody, I'm, I'm at so-and-so's church, and you post it, and you get all kind of likes. I mean, that's, that's, that's not why you go to church, right? Their creativity. Some people, this is, this is like their thing. This is why they, this is their thing about church, is how creative can we be? How, how cutting edge can we be in the church? You know, I'm not against technology. You know, we have big screens. We have lights hanging from the ceiling. I've always, often wondered when we're going to take those down. We'll probably eventually, I and mean, we've got to do a, a reset sometime. But we got lights hanging from the ceiling. we got, you know, it's a modern church building. We, we live stream now. If you haven't known that, we live stream on Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. So I'm not against technology, but I'm not for technology for the sake of technology's sake. I'm not for being creative for the sake of being creative so people can come and look at our creativity, right? I mean, that being creative is not the goal of a church. And I think sometimes people can, can place that as an idol in their view of church, that the goal is to try to be as creative as we possibly can with the gospel message. There's nothing wrong with being creative and you know, doing different things to try to preach the gospel message but as I said at the prayer time the gospel message is simple and you know what the word of God says it says that people are saved through the foolishness of preaching and why is the foolishness of preaching the tool that God uses because it's not our creativity because if it was by our creativity then what happens that's a good job you did a good job but if it's by the foolishness of preaching, then, man, I, I mean, look, it, 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 it shifts the glory from us, and it shifts the glory to Christ. If somebody can get saved when some person who, who can barely talk gets up there and communicates a message, God can use anybody to, com- to communicate the gospel message, and somebody can get saved. It's through the foolishness of the communication of the message, not our creativity and how compelling we are with our style. Their music. This is a sticky one here. Some people, some people will go to a church simply because of their music. I just want to tell you this. If you go to a church, if your reason for going to any church is because of their music, you are there for the wrong reason. Period. End of discussion. Well, oh, I'll explain it a little bit. But it is never any reason. It is never right to say, I'm going to go to this church because they sing the songs better than another church, because they make albums and they sell them on iTunes. You can have somebody that can play great music, a worship band that plays really powerfully, but the pastor gets up there and preaches baloney, and you need to get out. The way you decide that you're going to go to a church and be proud of that church is whenever it's the church that rightly divides the word of truth that has pastors that care about right doctrine, that care about rightly handling the word of truth, not about the lick on the guitar and the beat of the drum and how creative it looks and sounds. Because at the end of the day, trends change. Styles change. Songs change. But the word of God never changes. So, I love our worship music. And our worship team does a phenomenal job. But if they stunk up the room on Wednesdays and Sundays, I would come to this church. If we sung acapella, I would come to this church. Would you come to this church if we had no band? I'm not sure about that. <laughs> That's a test for a lot of people. Would you go to, I mean, think about the early church. You know, I've gone through this list here. Let's see what, let me, is there anything else I have up there? Their, their programs, their influence in the community. Now there's good influence we can have in, in the community and we can be proud of that, that we're influencing our, our, our community for Christ. But I'm looking at it from a negative sense that we're just, we're glad we're influential in the community for favor and things. But when you look through this list of things that a lot of people are proud of in their church, the church at Thessalonica had none of these. Let's look at the list. They, they didn't have a big church. It had just gotten planted. They didn't have a building. They weren't wealthy. Do you know why they weren't wealthy? Because a lot of them weren't working. (laughs) Because they thought Jesus had come back. They gave up. And then if they were working, they were ostracized because they were Christians. They didn't have, there's no great social status of anybody in the congregation. There was no prominent pastor. We have no mention of who the pastor was in this church. No prominence of any pastor. They weren't creative. We have no idea that, uh, of if, if they had music. There's no mention of the, the, that there was music in any, any of the er, early churches. We, we know that they were singing of hymns, a cappella, but there's no mention that they had instruments and, and music. I don't know if they had programs. And they clearly had no influence in the community. They were trying to run them out of town. So was this church any less of a church than this church, than any other prominent church that you can think of? Absolutely not. So what was it that we're going to see that makes what I, what I call, it, I titled the message, a faithful church? A faithful church or a healthy church or a church to be proud of? And this is what the Apostle Paul is getting at here. Let's read the verses here, Second Thessalonians 1, 1 through 5. He says, To the church of the Thessalonians, in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, as is right, because your faith is growing abundantly and the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. Therefore, we ourselves boast, we're proud, we boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness and your faith and all your persecutions and in the afflictions that you are enduring. This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering. Some powerful verses there. And so, what, what what do we see in these verses, with that context in mind? About what what should we be proud of about our church? What are the things that God values? We see the Apostle Paul is valuing that he's boasting about. The first thing that we saw is genuine conversion. Genuine conversion. And you may think, wait, wait, wait a minute. Is that something to boast about? He didn't know if their faith was genuine. He had, he planted the gospel, people got saved, and he got out of Dodge because he had to leave. Because people were trying to kill him. And so he got word back that their faith was increasing. That's what it said in that second section of those verses. And so he was proud of the fact that the church was full of believers, you know, I think a lot of times people get confused about what the purpose of, of a church is. I think a lot of times we believe that the purpose of a church is to attract non-believers. I know this is difficult, but just stretch your brain with me. The purpose, Because it, 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 this runs counter-cultural to a lot of the things that are ingrained in us as Christians growing up in church. A lot of people believe that the church, that word church, the church is for the purpose of the, of the attraction of non-believers, to get nonbelievers to come into the building. Well, let's study what that word church means, okay? That word church, the Greek word for that word church is the word ekklesia. And the word ekklesia means a calling out or in another way, a gathering of the called out. So a church is a gathering of those that God has called out from darkness into light. So this is what it says. Let's look, at, let's look at 2 Thessalonians. We're going to jump ahead. We will eventually cover this text. But this is 2 Thessalonians 2, 13 and 14. It says, But we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. To this, he called you through the gospel. It's a calling. It's a gathering of those that have been called through the gospel, so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Another section. There's a lot of other scriptures I could have used here, but here's the second one, Romans 8, 29 and 30. For those whom, speaking of God, he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. It's a calling out. And those whom he called... He justified. That's what it means to be saved. When you are called through the gospel message and by faith you believe in the message of the gospel, it says here in Romans 8, you are justified. And those those whom he justified, eventually the justified will be glorified. To be glorified means this this body of flesh will be stripped away and we will be in heaven in, in our glorified bodies. So those who are called through the gospel, they're justified, and then they're glorified. But a church is a gathering of the called out ones. And so this is where the the unbelievers come into play. The the unbelievers, so will we have unbelievers that come on Sunday mornings and on, on Wednesday nights? Absolutely. Every Sunday, and possibly on Wednesdays, we'll have unbelievers that will come in. And we don't put a sign at the door that says, Check yes or no if you're saved or you're not saved. Check yes or no if you're an adulterer or not an adulterer. Check yes. Or, well, everyone's welcome. Come, come to our church, right? And what happens is, is that whenever the gospel is put on display, people can be given opportunities to get saved. But it is, it has never been intended, or it should never be intended, that this is the primary place where people get saved. That's not what. The, that's not what the New Testament teaches us. It teaches us that the work of the ministry is to be done by the believers as they are mature in the faith and as they evangelize and go into their world and spread the gospel. That's where evangelism takes place. And so as you evangelize, as you go out into your world, preach the gospel, then the ones that God is calling through the gospel that you're preaching and God's tugging on their heart, they come into the doors. And they hear the message and they can make a, a, a profession of faith and God saves them. But the purpose of the church is for a gathering of genuine believers. And this is why it is so important. I want you to follow me. This is some mature Wednesday night Christians, right? This is why it is so important that on Sunday mornings we teach the Bible. We teach the Bible. I don't teach a message for an unbeliever. I teach, a mess, I teach the Bible to believers because the majority of people are believers here on Sundays. So the goal of the, the, of the gathering is so that the, 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 the believers can grow in their faith. But if I, as a pastor, if all I do is just preach to the non-believers, then all the sheep in the room, they're not getting fed. They're not getting anything and they're not maturing in their faith. So, the purpose of Sunday mornings when we gather, and this is what Paul was excited about. He got word back that even in the middle of persecution, these people are standing, they're staying, they are genuine converts. They are still in the church. And undoubtedly, we don't know the details here, but I guarantee you there was some type of word, maybe in the word that he got back. Somebody told him, you know so-and-so that you met whenever you first preached the gospel in this city? They're still here, and you wouldn't believe what's going on in their life. And he was rejoicing over the fact that the church was filled with genuine believers. Amen? And that's something to be excited about, to be proud of. A church is a gathering of those who have responded by faith to the call of the gospel. They've been called up by God from darkness into light Colossians 1, 12 through 14 says this, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the dominion of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. You know, let's go back to the the first verse in the text, Chuck. It says, to the church of the Thessalonians in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. That word in is significant. To the church of the Thessalonians, in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Christianity is the only religion that, that declares that we can be in God and God can be in us. Every other religion is a religion of external manipulation of righteousness. Christianity is the only one that says, come and die. Come and be crucified in Christ, Be buried in baptism with Christ and be raised to newness of life and have the Holy Spirit of God come and dwell inside of you. That's a powerful part of the gospel there, that Christ comes and lives on the inside of us. This is what it says in Colossians 1, 24 through 27. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you. To make the word of God fully known. Listen to this. Paul says, I want to make the word of God fully known and I'm a prisoner in chains for that. I'm suffering for it. And what what, what does the word of God reveal? The mystery hidden for ages and generations but now revealed to his saints. To them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery. And what is the mystery? Which is Christ in you. That's what separates Christianity from all other religions. It's Christ in you, the hope of glory. There's no hope. There's no hope unless Christ comes and takes lordship residence in your life. You cannot In your own flesh, manipulate your your flesh to be good enough and right enough. It takes a crucifixion of your flesh, a dying to yourself, so that you can have Christ come and live on the inside of you through the power of the Holy Spirit. Christ in you. And Paul is celebrating this. The church in Thessalonica is filled with genuine believers who have been born again and are found in Christ. And this is how he addresses them. He addresses them like this at the beginning of this letter. He says, he, let's, let's go back to that text. He says, to the church of the Thessalonians who are in God and our Father, the Lord Jesus Christ. He's acknowledging this is a, a gathering of those who have been called out and they are producing genuine fruits of repentance. They are in God and our Father, the Lord Jesus Christ. So that's the second, that, that, that's the first thing that a faithful church is. It's a gathering of the saints. You know, there will be a time where there will be a separating of the, sheeps, the sheep and the goats. And all the ones who are playing church, all the ones who are acting like they're believers and are mixed among the goats, are mis- mixed among the sheep, there's going to be a separating. And, that, and, 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 the, and they're going to be separated and the true believers will, will come to the surface. So one day, one day all, all, will, all will be made, made clear. The second thing that he brings out, this is really good here. This is let's go back to the text. It says, We ought and no, not, not, not chapter three. Yeah, chapter one. This is right after he talked to, he, he greeted them. And then he says this, we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, as is right, because your faith is growing abundantly. So the second thing that a faithful church is a gathering of the the called out ones, a gathering of genuine Christians that that these genuine Christians are showing a sign of increasing faith. And when he says this word increasing faith, or or he says growing abundantly, it has this picture of to increase beyond measure or to, 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 or, or grown beyond what could be expected. That's kind of the language that's being used there. So when he's saying, we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, as is right, because your faith is growing abundantly, it's kind of the picture as he's shocked. He's like, I just planted this church. I had to run out because of persecution, and I got word just a few months later, you guys are growing in the faith. You're persevering. I know the persecution that you're going through. This is amazing. Your faith is increasing. You are growing abundantly. And this is a sign of a faithful church. This is a sign of a church that is mature in the Lord. Their faith is increasing. They are growing increasingly into the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. First Thessalonians 3 gives us a picture. This is what we studied last time. I just want you to see what Paul's concern was. This is 1 Thessalonians 3, 9 and 10. For what thanksgiving can we return to God for you? For all the joy that we feel for your sake before our God, as we pray most earnestly night and day, that we may see you face to face and supply what is lacking in your faith. What's he saying there? He's saying, man, I want to get to you. I want to come back to you so I can do what? Help you increase in your faith. There's some things that I know I, haven't, I wasn't able to be there for a long time. I wasn't able to, 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 to teach all the things that I wanted to teach. So I want to get back to you so I can see to it that you increase in the faith. Now, he was never able to do that. But he got word, and this is why he says this in this second letter. He says, you are growing abundantly in the faith. And I'm, and I'm proud of this. You're growing abundantly. Paul was overjoyed and thankful that their faith was increasing, that they were growing in their trust and obedience in the Lord. So Paul had left the church while it was being persecuted. He would have been unsure as to know how they were going to respond, which is true. You don't know how they were going to respond. This is what I said in my first point. How were they going to make it? Were they going to be genuine in their faith, or were they going to, or, or, or was, or, or, or was that? That, that, that proclamation of faith really genuine or was it not and persecution was gonna prove whether it was genuine. That's what we see in, in Matthew 13, 20 and 21. It says, it, this is Jesus speaking. He's talking about the, the parable of the, seed, the sower and the seeds. He talks about different types of ground that the seed can be sowed on. As for what was sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word. So these, this, these people at this church in Thessalonica, they heard, they heard the word, and immediately they received it with joy. Yet he has no root in himself, but endures for a while. And when tribulation or persecution arises on the count of the word, immediately he falls away. And that picture of the word fall away, is fall away like you would not have been a Christian. And so Jesus speaks of the idea that somebody can hear the word of God, they can receive it, But their faith was not genuine because persecution brought to the surface either the genuineness of their faith or the fact that it wasn't. Persecution will prove who you really are. Suffering and trials will prove who you really are. 1 Peter 1, 6 and 7, and I'm reading a lot of uh, cross-reference scriptures here because it's so rich. 1 Peter 1, 6 and 7 says this, In this you rejoice, now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials. And this is what happens in trials. So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So when we go through persecutions and trials, it's going to prove whether or not we, that, that faith that we proclaimed will make it until the end. Trials and persecution will weed out the sheep from the goats. Somebody who says, well, I believe in Jesus until somebody persecutes me for it. Well, I believe in Jesus and want to follow him until life gets difficult and gets challenging. So Paul had no way of knowing whether or not this was going to take place. Because he, he knew how he was leaving them. He knew the condition and the atmosphere in the in the city that he left him, and he knew it was difficult. And he got word back that they were persevering. He got word back that they were standing on their faith, and not only standing on their faith, but their faith was increasing more and more. Persecution increased their faith; it didn't stamp it out. You know, the church of Jesus Christ was born in persecution. We don't know that right now. We don't live that right now. We have no. That's like foreign language to us. What is persecution? None of us, maybe some of you, if you go gone to a foreign country, you, you, you can correct me later if you've been through it. Miss Penny may have been through that. But for the most part, in America, we do not know persecution. Like the early church knew persecution, threatened on your job, losing your job because of your faith. If you lose your job because of your faith in America, you go sue, right? You, they can't discriminate because of faith. We don't know persecution in America. So this is foreign language to us. We have a view of, of Christianity that is actually not even biblical when it comes to this. And we think that Christianity should be something different than what it was. And it was this way for them. Some reason we think and expect that our Americanized view of the gospel is the way that it, sh- that it should be. I'm gonna talk about that in my last point. You guys, I hope you still love me by the time I'm done with that The Thessalonians increasing faith in the middle of intense persecution affirmed the genuineness of their faith. And in this, Paul was thankful. Pressures and persecutions and trials in your life are designed by God to bring to the surface who you really are. It's a refining fire. Paul was proud. He was boasting in this church because they were increasing in their faith. They did not give up. Because of difficulty. Third thing he was proud of, and we've hit this point over and over again. You can tell this is a theme. The third point is, this, let's just go to the text there. It says this, and there, and the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. Have we talked about that <laughs> Any in, this, in, in this study? You guys think back to the, how many times I've told you that you need to love each other? Right? And this is, this is what he says. He's gotten word back. The love of every one of you for one another is increasing. So he's getting word. Not only is their faith genuine, and they're standing the, 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 the test of their faith through persecution, but they're loving one another. That they're, they're being genuinely kind to one another and encouraging one another and, and helping each other in the midst of persecution. When pressure is applied in relationships, they can easily be caught in that those relationships can easily be caught in the crossfire. You guys ever experienced that even in your personal life? When, there's, when pressure is applied in your life? Sometimes, sometimes the people you love the most can be caught in the crossfire, and you can be rude and mean and difficult with those that you love. I mean, I, I, as much as you don't want to believe this, I'm, I'm, I'm not always a, a nice pastor. My, my, my kids, they will tell me, I, this is so funny. If, if I don't act right according to their standard, Eliana especially, she'll tell me, I'm going to tell Pastor Rene. <laughs> and I say, and I told her a couple of days ago, I said, well, you know, Pastor Renee's moving to Texas. I said, so what are you going to do when he's gone? I'm going to tell God. <laughs> I said, well, I said, God's, God's my boss. And I said, so you can tell God I'm not acting right. But but sometimes in the stress of our days and in when the pressure is applied in our life, when we have sickness, when we have lost a job, when we're losing hours, when our marriage is, 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 is going through challenges, sometimes the people we love the most can be caught in the crossfire, can be caught in the middle, and we can forget the love of Christ that's in our heart and how, and how blessed we are to have them in our life. And that's the same picture of what it should look like in the body of Christ. Sometimes, we can be so overwhelmed and burdened when we come into these doors on Sundays. And you could have somebody, you know, your brother and sister that you come and see every Sunday and Wednesday. And they greet you and they're happy and excited and you're just like, mm-hmm. you know, you're just kind of like, don't want to talk to them. You give them a half-hearted little smile and give them the cold shoulder. And, and you know, that, that shouldn't be the, the norm. Should be not what, that should not be what is normative for us in our church. And you know, I've hit this point like the last three times I've preached because it's always fallen to me to cover loving each other. So you guys get the point, right? The, your love for each other should be continuing to increase and to grow. Why? This is, what did we say last week? I brought out the scripture that talked about how we should love one another as Christ has loved us. And that's that self-sacrificing love. That's that love that says my needs are not greater than your needs, and my preferences are not greater than your preferences. That's the love of Christ. And when it's shed abroad in our hearts, and He died for us when we were still sinners, then because that love is controlling our hearts, that's how we relate to, to one another. And as we learned last week, when the world sees that type of love, it's a proof to them that God is real, it's a testimony of the gospel message. So that, that's the third thing that he's proud of. It's their growing love. So they're a genuine church full of believers. They're increasing in faith. They're growing in love. And fourthly and finally, they have a kingdom mindset. They have a kingdom mindset. Every healthy church, every faithful church must have a kingdom mindset. Let's go to the closing of verses four and five here. It says, therefore, <clears throat> we ourselves, excuse me, catching a frog because I'm talking too loud. Therefore, we ourselves boast about you in the churches. You see what he's saying here? He's boasting about, I'm boasting about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness. This is what we were talking about. And faith, you're, 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 you're withstanding the persecution, you're increasing in your faith in all of your persecutions and in the afflictions you are enduring. This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God For which you are also suffering. Why are they suffering? Because of the kingdom of God. They're suffering because they have aligned themselves with the truth of the gospel. How powerful is that? Sometimes I think I I wish I would get persecuted like that. I'm being real with you. I've never, never suffered like that. How would I stand? If I said that I align myself with the kingdom of God, my allegiance is is not to any other king or any other ruler. My allegiance is to King Jesus. And as a result of that allegiance, I get persecuted. That's, That's being counted worthy of the kingdom. And that's what they were doing. They had a kingdom mindset. They didn't bail because it got difficult in their faith. They didn't bail because they were going through challenges or sicknesses or they were being abused, taking advantage of because of their allegiance to the kingdom of Christ. They believed in the resurrection of Jesus. That's the crux of Christianity is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We think the crux of Christianity is a lot of other things in cultural Christianity But the crux of Christianity is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And this is what the early church bled and died for. was a belief that Jesus was not just a man and not just the Messiah and didn't just do miracles and didn't just die on the cross. But died on the cross, was in the grave for three days and rose out of the grave and was seen by over 500 people after his resurrection. This is what they died for. They died and were persecuted because they said, we believe in Jesus Christ and we believe that he was raised from the dead and we're going to worship him. That's a kingdom mindset. And this is what Paul is boasting about. He's looking at this church. He knew what it was like when he was forced out in the middle of the night. He saw the anger and the hostility of the Jews towards this, earth, this, 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 this new church that was just birthed and power and might. And he knew what they were going to go through. And he got word back that they had a kingdom mindset. That they kept their allegiance to the truth of the resurrection. And they didn't waver. Some of them lost their life for it. I would imagine he got word back that people lost their life because of their allegiance to faith in Jesus. But the church persevered and it grew and it increased in the middle of persecution. There is a man-centered attitude that permeates a lot of churches today the church of the lord jesus is not centered around the exaltation of man his man's temporal needs his desires or his wants it is not centered around having an easy christian life void of all difficulty trials and pain that is not christianity it is not biblical christianity the opposite is actually true. It's not centered around trying to live a better life. That's false religion. Or being successful at navigating navigating difficult life experiences. That's not Christianity. That's false religion. Christianity centers around the exaltation of Christ. And the reality of the resurrection of Christ. That's Christianity. That's why we gather. That's why we worship. That's why we sing songs. That's why we witness. That's why we evangelize. That's why we take trailers on Saturday. We're going to go to Orange, Texas. And we're going to, we're going to preach the gospel through our, through our good deeds and through the words that we say. That's why we do that. That's Christianity. Christianity. It's not about gathering on Sundays to hear a message about how to have a better life. That's not church. It's not the center of church. Does God want you to have a better life? He's not not an angry man upstairs who wants you to be like a sour pickle. He wants you to be happy, but He wants you to be happy because of Christ. Not because you have the big house. Not because, you're, not because you're, your bills are paid. Not because your marriage is good. Not because of all the lists of other things that need to be right for us to be good with God. Because again, when it's all stripped away, when it's all stripped away, because it will be, what is left? That's Christianity. And I I, I fear, I fear that we have all, myself included, we have all been influenced greatly by cultural Christianity, by American cultural Christianity. We've bought into the idea that church is about me. Church is about me. It's about me coming and having an experience. I can't tell you how many times I hear churches advertising, come to our church experience. Like it's a show that they're going to put on. The church, you guys still with me. I know some heavy stuff. (laughs) You guys still love me? The church of the Lord Jesus is centered around the exaltation of Christ and the advancement of the kingdom of God. And as I said earlier, I fear that we have all been influenced by cultural Christianity, a form of Christianity that makes the Bible about us. This kind of Christianity has no room for a biblical view of suffering. So I just want to read this to you. This is a commentary by Leon Morris. It's kind of lengthy. I want you to read it with me. This is his commentary on, on the books we're studying. It says, The New Testament does not look on suffering in quite the same way as do most modern people. To us, it is in itself an evil, something to be avoided at all cost. Now, while the New Testament does not gloss over the aspect of suffering, it does not lose sight either of the fact that in the good providence of God, Suffering is often the means of working out God's eternal purpose. It develops in the sufferers qualities of character. It teaches valuable lessons. Suffering is not thought of as something that may poss- that, that may possibly be avoided by the Christian. For him, for him, it is inevitable. He is ordained to it. He must live out his life and develop his Christian character in a world which is dominated by non-Christian ideas. His faith is not some fragile thing to be kept in a kind of spiritual cotton wool, insulated from all shocks. It is robust. It is to be manifested in the fires of trouble and in the furnace of affliction. The very troubles and afflictions which the world heaps on the believer become under God the means of making him what he ought to be in suffering. When we, have come to, when we come to regard it in this light, it is not to be thought of as, as evidence that God has forsaken us. You guys hear that? It is not to be thought of as evidence that God has forsaken us, but as evidence that God is with us. Such suffering is a vivid token of the presence of God. This is what it said in 2 Thessalonians. This is what he said there. He said, because of your suffering, it is evidence and proof that you are counted worthy to suffer for the gospel, for the kingdom of God. It is a token. It is evidence that you are a part of the kingdom when you suffer for Jesus' sake. I, w- I want to read this in conclusion. I want to end with, with scripture here in Romans eight eighteen through 25. It says, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed in us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. What's Paul saying there? Saying that the earth itself is under subjection because of the curse of sin. That's why we have Hurricane Irma. That's so why we had Hurricane Harvey. It's so why we have earthquakes. It's so why we have the earth itself is groaning to be redeemed. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now because of this suffering. And not only the creation, but we ourselves are groaning. We ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, who are believers, groan inwardly. As we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. In what hope? In the hope that this was temporary. In the hope that the gospel was true. In the hope that the resurrection was true. And that one day temporary will be stripped away and eternal will be the reality. Heaven will be our home. This is what we groan for. I'm not saying that we should celebrate suffering and say come and get me. But I'm saying in the suffering, we say, God, I know that you are not abandon me. You are with me in the middle of suffering. And when I'm in the middle of that suffering, you are working in me a weight that far exceeds all the, the pain of the temporary things I'm going through. It is working in me a weight of glory. You're maturing in me. You're growing in me. And, and, and in the middle of that, we're groaning. We're saying, God, my hope is in you. It's in heaven. It's in the fact that this is not going to last forever. It's in the fact that one day you're going to put your foot down on the earth, and you're going to say time will be no more. Suffering will be no more. Pain will be no more. Sin and temptation will be no more. Satan's rule will be no more. He will no longer be allowed to enslave people in bondage to sin. God will stamp it out in judgment. And that is our hope. And that is why we groan inwardly. And that is a sign. That is a sign of a faithful church who has that view, that view of the kingdom mindset. Not only the creation, but we ourselves, we have the first fruits of the spirit, grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption of sons. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope, this is really neat what it says here. Now hope that is seen is not hope. Right? What's to hope for if you see it? If it's right here, I don't need to hope that I'm going to get it one day. I have it. But I don't see heaven. but It's there. And I'm going there. I might be going there sooner than I think. <laughs> now, hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees, Paul says. But if, but if we hope for what we do not see... We wait for it with patience. For what I just told you, that God will end it all. He will bring justice. He will bring a wiping away of all your tears. And every bit of suffering you go go through for the sake of the kingdom of God, that you glorify him through the suffering, you're gonna receive an eternal weight of glory. And every time you glorify God through the pain, you're going to receive an eternal weight of glory. And there will be a trail of people that follows behind you because you had a kingdom mindset, and, and your faith stood the test like this church did. Your faith stands the test in the middle of cancer. It stands the test in the middle of that child that's running away from God. It stands the test in the middle of the layoff. It stands the test in the middle of the persecution. And you, when you stand and you stay faithful, and your faith increases and grows, and you're matured in the faith, you will have a trail of people follow behind you because of the impact of the gospel in their life. Amen? Amen. Just you stand with me? Lord, I, I, pray, I, I, pray that, I pray, Lord, that we can live this. Oh, Lord, let that be true of us all tonight. God, as I preach it, Lord, God, I feel the weight of that truth. Lord, let that be true in my heart and in all of our hearts. God, that we would not allow challenges and difficulties in life to diminish our faith. But we would surrender to the work of the Holy Spirit in our life in the middle of the challenges, in the middle of the pain, in the middle of the suffering and the persecution. We would let you do your work. We let you do your work. And God, may we glorify you in it. May may the power of the gospel be seen more vividly through how our faith is increased even in the middle of difficulties. I thank you for this church. I thank you for what you're doing in Living Word Church. You are building your church. You're building a church full of, of, of people that have a kingdom mindset that are about the advancement of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I thank you for that. You have great things ahead for us. God, as we open your word and as we teach your word, as we explain the Bible and and, and people understand it and they grow in their faith, God, you are building an army in this church that is going to spread the gospel all over this community, this region, and all over the world. I thank you for that. We anticipate that in Jesus' name. Amen.